The reading this evening is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. You can find it on page 1180 of the Church Bibles. 1180. So from verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Theodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side at the, in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Please do keep that passage open. There's an outline on the back of your service sheets. Why don't we pray? Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you very much for your word to us. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had over a number of weeks now to carefully go through every word of this letter that you've caused to be written, that you've inspired. Please teach us now by your spirit and through these words, I pray. Amen. Some words of a great old hymn to begin with. He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. The broken, I, the broken heart I had was good for me. He tore it all apart and looked inside. He found it full of fear and foolish pride. He swept away the things that made me blind and then I saw the clouds were silver lined and now I understand to his best for me. He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. That hymn was uh, written uh, just over a hundred years ago by a man, I think, who understood the seemingly paradoxical tension that is the backbone of this letter to the church in Philippi. Paul is writing to this beloved church. He'd established it in this uh, well-known Roman colony. Back in Acts 16, you can read of the exciting, uh, kind of historical account of the establishment of this church. And many of you will know, as you've gone through the book of Acts, we did this a couple of uh, years ago now, um, of the excitement as uh, Paul proclaims the gospel. And first of all, Lydia, the seller of purple cloth, becomes the first convert of Paul in Europe. Many of us, I'm sure, will then remember uh, the demon-possessed girl who literally had what's called a pythonic spirit in her. She predicted the future, and Paul healed her, much to the angst of her owners, getting himself into a lot of trouble in the process. But despite all of that, uh, being in Philippi was a huge encouragement to Paul and his companions. But then he was... Stripped, he was beaten, he was arrested, placed in jail and flogged severely. But despite that, we read in Acts 16 verse 25, Paul and his companions are in prison, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. You see, that's it. That's the tension, if you like, that we're trying to hold together. It's been held throughout this book. There's joyful singing of praise and prayer amidst the tears of suffering. And that tension runs throughout Paul's experience. 
and throughout this letter to the church in Philippi. I don't know if you remember chapter 1 verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see the church in Philippi as they observed Paul, they knew that was true of him. He believed that, they'd seen it. They, they knew the trials that he faced, but they also knew his joyful response. Because he knew salvation in Christ. And to live for Christ was everything for him. Therefore, we read about the church in Philippi in response uh, as they saw Paul. They were partners. They were fellowshipping with him in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 5 of this letter. Uh, It was a fellowship. It was a bond. It was a unity that they had with the apostle. Not only in their faith, but also as they shared in the sufferings that he shared in. And sadly, it's in those moments, isn't it, of trial and of suffering where so many begin to shake their puny fists at God and so begin to cry and, and blame him and say, it's just not fair. Despite having God done everything to end that pain, to stem the flow of tears and provide an eternal joy. It, in those fleeting moments when life just seems so unbearable and so weighty, it is those moments, isn't it? that sadly people even walk away from God. And some of you may even be considering that today. You look at life and the circumstances of which you're facing right now, and you are seriously thinking, enough is enough. I can't do this any longer. This Christian stuff has got to go. Well, our passage today, I think, begins with, note it's an instruction to the Philippian church, and I guess you need to hear it too. Stand firm. Stand firm. The whole letter has been leading to this. Hence, you get that linking word at the beginning of verse 1. I don't know if you spotted it. Therefore, it's there for a reason. Sorry, it's a basic English lesson there. But, you know, therefore, stand firm. Why? Well, for a whole number, a catalogue of reasons that Paul has mentioned so far in the letter. Think about it. Because they're partners in the gospel with Paul, chapter 1, verse 5. Because they believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like Paul, chapter 1, verse 21. Because they stand firm, particularly in one spirit. Chapter 1, verse 27. The spirit of God that would mean that they support each other and love one another as they face trials and suffering. And because they work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Chapter 1, verse 27. Sorry, chapter 2, that is. Verse 12. Because they know critically the power of his resurrection and they share and together with with Christ's sufferings in chapter 3. We saw last week, didn't we? That because also they are citizens of heaven. For all those reasons and countless more within this letter so far, Paul is appealing to them now, stand firm. Stand firm. It is such a a kind of hinge verse, if you like. Paul has just mentioned. Just look back to chapter 3, verse 17, if you can, for a second. That he's encouraged the church to join with others to follow his example. That is, follow the example of the one who has stood firm. And so now, after warning them of the impending spread of the false teachers in chapter 3, of reminding them of his own steadfast example of standing firm, he instructs them, do likewise, stand firm. And Paul isn't writing a kind of a kind of a cold telegram like you know instruction here, like you get in you know, the world wars, fight them on this flank. No, it's like it's very warm, isn't it? Look at verse one with me, if you can. Therefore, my brothers, or brothers and sisters, you whom I love, 
I long for my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. The church is his joy. The church is his crown because they imitate him. They don't trust the false teachers of chapter 3. Rather they trust, you know, because the false teachers, they trust themselves. Rather they trust Paul who preaches Christ, makes much of Christ. Therefore, the church is an utter joy to him, for, like him, for them to live as Christ. But they're also his crown. I guess a people of victory, Christ's victory, that Paul has simply been proclaiming. And note the kind of the, how he cherishes them as well. Dear friends, he finishes that verse with. Paul writes, this is how you should stand firm. See, verse 1 not only points them back and says there's a number of reasons why, therefore, you should stand firm. It was also pointing forwards. And now we get, he launches in, uh, in chapter 4, this detailed set of instructions of how they are to stand firm, to keep going, if you like. I guess it's good for us all to ask ourselves, isn't it? Right at the beginning, yeah, do we want to be ones, those who stand firm for Christ? Do we want to know how, what it is to, to never give up for Christ? Do we want to know how Paul can, in the same time, be singing praises and praying to God whilst there are strips of flesh falling off his back after being flogged? Well, read on if that's what you want. Stand firm, Paul says. I don't know if you spotted his significant first instruction. It comes in verse 2. It's regarding relationships, interestingly. Relationships with the people within the church. And the instruction comes in verse 2 and 3. And it's to agree with each other. I've put it on your sheets there. Just to be of the same mind. It's a phrase that I guess you have picked up. That it's, it's throughout the letter. Think back to chapter 2 verse 5. We're to have the same mind or the same attitude as that of Christ. Who demonstrated his humility. It's the same mind. It's the same word being used there. Likewise in chapter 3 we're called to consider, to know. That is to think. Our minds are keys throughout this whole letter. And so Paul now provides a very practical example. Of two women within the church who were not in agreement with one another. Their minds were, if you like, vying against each other. Their names, Euodia and Syntyche. But it's interesting, in both uh, the historical account in Acts 16 and also here in Philippians 4, uh, it might not seem strange to us, but it, in the culture of the times, it would have been very odd that there are so many accounts of faithful contending women for the gospel. It's a good thing. Women who were partners with Paul as he made the gospel known. Lydia in Acts 16 and now here in chapter 4 verse 2. Euodia and Syntyche. There is no hint within both accounts of these women being anything but faithful gospel partners of Paul. They had not listened to the false teachers of chapter 3 or been immoral in any way. We see no record of that. It just seems these two women struggled to get on with each other. And so Paul in a very gentle and loving way pleads with each of them. No, actually, look at look how he addresses both individually. He says, I plead with Euodia and I also plead with Syntyche. It's kind of two separate pleadings. And their lack of agreement, think what it was doing. It was jeopardizing the witness of the church and, and the vitality of the gospel that they proclaimed. 
And amazingly, even though Paul languished in prison miles away, he'd heard of this situation and it's significant enough for him to then to write and make sure that he addresses it. Now, can you imagine as the letter is read out in the church in Philippi? It wouldn't have looked like this. They, you know, uh, but there they were. They were listening to the letter. And if, you know, if someone had had a late, you know, a late night the previous night before and they nodded off a bit somewhere through chapter 3, you can imagine as the ears would suddenly prick up. This, you know, suddenly, you know, kind of Vicky and Mim were mentioned. I'm, a, I'm a, not picking on anyone there. But, he's a, but, you know, suddenly two people were mentioned within the church. It would have been extraordinary. Yes, Paul's very diplomatic in these two verses and very gentle. But to be named by an apostle, can you imagine every eye within the whole gathering? But oh, there's Euodia and there's Syntyche. But also, I guess their eyes would have been focused on one other person as well. Do you notice the, the loyal yoke fellow of verse 3, who Paul was asking to help these two women? Now, we don't know who the man was. He's probably a leader. Could have been an elder in the church. He may have even been the man reading out this letter. Some people kind of say it could have been Luke, because Luke was a, a kind of a traveling companion of Paul. But Paul hands over the care of these two women to the leaders of the church. These women are great women. They've contended at the side of Paul for the gospel. And so Paul very tenderly commends them to the church, to the leaders of the church, so that they might be restored, that they might be in agreement with one another. What is to happen? Well, the literal uh, command is there to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, let's be clear what he's asking here. Paul is not asking them for, for them to have unity of the, in their minds at the expense of truth. It's not what we see too often in the world around us where you know, people say, oh, we both agree really, don't we? When the two truths are completely opposed to one another. It's not that relativistic way of thinking, no. Also, he's not trying to get two strong godly women to perfectly agree on everything in life and doctrine. We all know that that's not, no, I'm not going there. You know, we'll all have small differences of thought, won't we? Doesn't matter what, uh, who we are, man or woman, we all have small differences of thought and opinion. And Paul is not addressing those finer details here at all. What he's saying is using a like-minded verb here. And, and Paul's appeal is to an attitude, a mind, to a same fundamental aim, a same priority, a same orientation. And it is the orientation and priority of the gospel. Paul is essentially saying here, focus on the very core of what unites you. The good news about Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. The gospel, the gospel. That's what he's saying, unite in. Be in agreement with. Did they listen? We can't be sure. It doesn't state it here. But if they did, then the, the instructions that follow, verses 4 through to verse 7, well, they're, they're, they're actually being very applicable to these two women. Because they're, if you like, verse 4 to 7, a kind of prescription of peace. Unity and like-mindedness kind of flows through them within the church. Let's look at those together if we can, verse 4 through to verse 7. They begin with that amazing instruction. And I guess so many of us 
As uh, Nathan, we're reading, we're going, yeah, I know these verses. Yeah, I've got those ones down. Thank you very much. You know, I rejoice. And you kind of, like, you memorize it, don't you? You know it. Something we teach our children very early on, these verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. It's a command. We've seen it twice before, actually, in this letter. Back in chapter 2, verse 18, and 3, verse 1. But you know, as well as I do, that it's a theme, rejoicing, joy, that has been throughout this whole letter. Many, many times, 14, 15 times. But now in chapter 4, verse 4, what Paul is doing is, if you like, he cements the instruction to rejoice. One great theologian I was reading this week described this joy in Philippians like this, as a defiant, nevertheless joy. That is... We're commanded here to rejoice. Whatever we face, whatever circumstances come our way, it is in utter defiance against the relentless, complaining nature of humanity. Even in comfy southwest London, where many of us live, we're not given much respite from this, are we? Uh, complaining seems like a fun leisure activity to most people that I know. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, the professionals complain about the hours that they work. Some people complain about the, the lack of pay that they receive. Mums complain about, the, complain about the parenthood, you know, and the burdens of it. And dads complain that everyone else shouldn't complain because they have it worse than everyone else. What does everyone else know? I, I, you know, the world's instruction, you see, is complain. It is the sport of Earlsfield in the cafes. And Paul's instruction, very counterculturally, is rejoice. Rejoice. Do remember though, I mean he writes these verses, don't, don't flippantly look down and say, oh well, that's easy for him to say in his five million pound mansion overlooking Wandsworth. No, he's in prison. His back has been ripped apart. He may even die. But nevertheless, rejoice. Will we? Will we? Look at it, verse 4, he even kind of doubles it, doesn't he? He says, rejoice, and again, I say rejoice. You can imagine him metaphorically kind of tapping on a head like an annoying little child saying, rejoice. No, rejoice again. Maybe you don't have children like that, I do. Do you get it yet? Rejoice. Note there are no loopholes. However humiliating and painful things were, rejoice. In the Lord, always, always. They define their joy in the Lord, not their circumstances, because that is Christian joy. It's to be found in Him, not the money we have, not the experiences that we enjoy. It's to be found in Christ. One uh, preacher put it this way Christian joy is a basic and constant orientation of the Christian life. It is the fruit and evidence of a relationship with the Lord. It comes from what the Lord has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. See, the logic of the passage is that those who let their heart rejoice in the Lord always will not only stand firm, verse 1 there, but they will also, as you see as the logic goes through the passage, they will also, verse 7, know that peace. That peace with God. 
The point, I, I guess, if you, if you summarise all of this, is really that rejoicing is not like an optional extra, a kind of a luxury for a Christian. It's an absolute necessity. One thing I can predict for every single one of us here, that there will be times in our lives, whether we're going through it right now, or they may come in a year, a month, ten years, whenever it may be, all of us, without exception, will go through the most horrific times of trial. The stresses of life, loneliness, sickness and pain. You will at one point, without exception, have to experience your own death. Even worse, you'll have to experience the death of someone you love and cherish dearly. But in all those circumstances, Paul says rejoice. Rejoice. How? Well, rejoicing is always in the Lord. And it must begin with that most constant truth of your life. That is, if you're a Christian today and you've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is where your rejoicing begins. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy. For you're receiving the the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, right at the core of it is, is rejoicing in the salvation that we know in Christ. But it mustn't end there. It mustn't. For example, just examine the providential work of God in your life, how he's brought you to this point in your life today. See all the kindnesses that he has lavished upon you in so many ways. Yesterday evening I was with someone and we were rejoicing together. Someone was going through a tough time and we began rejoicing, firstly in what Christ has done for us. But my friend continued to list the numerous kindnesses that God had poured out into his life. Yes, it's in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, but we must rejoice and cling to the salvation and the kindnesses of God. We must, we can rejoice always. Now, note that I haven't even mentioned what we can rejoice in looking forward, but there's a thousand things you can do there. Spend some time doing it, it's fun. In this world of complaining, we're to rejoice That nevertheless attitude of joy despite our circumstances. No exceptions. None of your hearts should be buying out of this right now. There should be no muted praise. Because of what Christ has done and is doing and will do, we will rejoice. We must rejoice. In the Lord, always. The next instruction is, look at verse 5, it's it's, it's plain and simple, it's down there. And it is the result of our rejoicing. It is what um, rejoicing produces. Let your gentleness be evident. And this gentleness, it's been translated in all sorts of ways. If you've got an ESV, I think it's reasonableness. An old translation, Tyndale's translation, it was softness. uh, We wouldn't probably use that today. Moderation, I think it's KGV, the old King James But all of that is to be evident in our lives. And please please note that Paul is not commanding us to a kind of a dry, cold experience of let's learn some truth. Get it in our heads. No, look at it. His instructions are aimed at a whole life, 
long-lasting commitment to Christ. There's nothing here that sort of says, let's get grit our teeth. Cold reading of the Bible. Legalistic determination. It's rejoicing. Gentleness to be evident to all. And it's the gentleness of Christ that is in view. Jesus used the same word of himself uh, in Matthew 11, describing himself as gentle. It's not, that, that, it's not the grasping of power. So when Jesus didn't grasp at power in chapter 2, it's the same kind of language being used there. So the sequence, the sequence and the logic reads something like this. Rejoice and be gentle. What we see is that Christ-like gentleness is the outworking of rejoicing in the Lord. It's a necessary tonic for Yoda and Syntyche, back in verse 2 and 3. And it's the remedy that the world out there needs so much to stop them complaining when they have so much. But let's not forget Paul's final comment of verse 5. It's so easily overlooked. Oh, we would. Let's move on quickly. But no, actually, look at it. The Lord is near. All the imperatives of this passage, all the instructions, the like-mindedness, the rejoicing, the gentleness, and what follows about being anxious are all grounded in two small Greek words that can be translated and overlooked and so easily overlooked. We look at them, the Lord is near. His nearness, you see, causes us to rejoice. His nearness affects our gentleness. It tempers our anxiety. But how is the Lord near? Is he near spatially? Can we reach out? Is he near temporally? Is he coming in time? Well, it's both, really. The Lord is, of course, ever-present. And that he dwells in the hearts of uh, those who trust him means he's closer than your very breath. But he's also near because one day he will return. And in relation to the, the eternity that he will usher in, the time will seem like a blink of an eye. He is very near, spatially and temporally. So the the nearness of the Lord is is the motivation to heed all of the instructions that we've seen already and the ones to come. You just think about how how the nearness of the Lord kind of relates to what we've seen so far. Would, you know, you, Odin and Syntyche be in such a kind of disagreement if Christ was sat next to them? Would they not see the futility of it? Would we not recognise his perfect example and sort of the future glory that he secured and think, well, this disagreement just relatively, it means nothing, does it? Let's agree. Just think about it. He's there right beside you. He's right in you if you know him and trust in him. The Lord is near. So be of the same mind. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident because the Lord is near. Likewise, second point, do not be anxious. Look at verse 6 with me if you can. Remember where Paul is? I want to remind you all the time because it's so helpful to think of his context as he's writing these letters. He can still say these words, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. See, despite the real things that the Philippian church would have been facing, poverty, hunger, being, being ostracised in society, the false teaching that they were coping with, and we looked at it in chapter 3, literally Paul says here, you guys worry about nothing. Worry about absolutely nothing. 
The same applies to us, and I don't think Paul is isolated in this instruction. I think Jesus says it even stronger, so don't kind of partition him off from Jesus at this point. Matthew 6, literally Jesus says, to worry is to be a pagan. Three times Jesus forbids us to worry, and Paul's applying it here, and he's saying, stop worrying about anything. Anything. The job. The bank balance. The relationship or lack of it. The children or lack of them. The house or lack of them. The move. The um, the schooling. Nothing. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, he says. I think thankfulness is the mark of Christian prayer. If you find your prayers just being moans, endless lists of grumbling, should you be surprised if you struggle to rejoice and find yourself anxious? In every situation, pray with thanksgiving. Here, Paul, you know, if you find yourself beaten and tortured for being faithful to Christ, what does he do? He prays with thanksgiving. If you find yourself single, without children, you long for children, you find yourself without a job, struggling, suffering, going through trial after trial, what does Paul say? Pray with thanksgiving. Why? Because as we bring our request to him, what happens? You begin to cast your cares on him, don't you? And in so doing, what are you you doing? You're declaring him to be the one who is sovereign over all of those things. Struggles, all the trials you're facing. And you're saying, in these things, painful though they are, I trust you. You are king, even in this. And that is why Paul lays everything before God. God already knew it. Of course he does. Zach prays like this. Zach always prays like this. He basically tells God what he does every night. I scored two goals yesterday at football, God. It was great. I won, and he was very pleased with himself last night. You know, and he said, God knows it already. But he longs for us to cast our cares onto him. To show them that we trust him with not only the good things, but also the struggles and the trials and the pain. (coughs) Remembering God's grace in all circumstances, praying with thanksgiving, I think we'll see this week and next week, it is the key to contentment. Do not be anxious. We'll look at that more next week, but there are four imperatives, four instructions here with a sublime end. Let's look at that as we close. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let the peace of God guard you. That peace of God, but let me describe that if you like. It's, uh, he possesses it in his eternal nature and relationships. And it is the same peace that we can know today. It is the same peace that Christ embodied Yes, it defies all understanding, but we can see it. And it's why Paul can sing with joy 
as the flesh on his back was stripping off. Why is it that a Christian can go through such terrible trial and suffering and still rejoice in the kindness of God? You know people like that. Have you ever wondered why they can rejoice? It's because the peace of God is literally garrisoning their heart, guarding their heart, protecting their heart. If you go it on your own, this life will rip you apart. If you go it with Christ, trusting his life and his death and his resurrection, though there will be tears, for some of you, many tears, you will stand firm. Be like-minded with those brothers and sisters who contend for the gospel with you. Rejoicing in the Lord always, despite your circumstances. Let your Christ-like gentleness be evident to all. Not being anxious, but trusting God and his sovereign care. With peaceful, guarded hearts. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Let's pray. Second verse of the hymn I prayed earlier and read. He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. The glory of himself revealed to me. I did not know that he had wounded hands. I saw the blood he split upon the sands. I saw the marks of shame and wept and cried. He was my substitute. For me he died. And now I'm glad he came so tenderly and washed my eyes with tears that I might see. Heavenly Father, may we see and may we stand firm. Amen. In a moment, uh, the children are going to come and join us and we're going to share the Lord's Supper.